what you've done in our lives and what you've done for us. We look at the goodness of your mercy on the cross, Lord. And as we open up your word now, may we be motivated and moved to live for you and to surrender for you because of the great love that you showed us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Powerful worship. Thank you so much, worship team. Love it. And I'm so glad to see everyone here today. Good to have some new faces in here as well. Thanks for joining us, all of you who came from the basketball tournament. And if you haven't met some of these amazing people yet, I'm the pastor of Vertical Church, and the people here are incredible. Um, we're going to open up God's word now to the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're in chapter 10 today. We're in a series that we're calling Called Out. And it means that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've repented of your sins and given your life to him and trusted in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, that now you have new life in Jesus. You've been called out of the darkness into something new. And this whole book through 1 Corinthians, we're seeing again and again this new life that we have, this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. So as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 10, maybe you're there already. I want to tell you a little bit about a place called Victoria Falls. Anybody ever heard of Victoria Falls? I know you have, right? We all have pretty prob probably heard of Victoria Falls. Most people classify this as the overall largest waterfall in the world. It's in Zambia, Africa. It's beautiful. It was first discovered by the Europeans by that missionary explorer extraordinaire David Livingston in 1855. And ever since then, it's just been on our radar. People love it. People love visiting it. It's breathtaking. But what you may not have heard about Victoria Falls from seventh grade geography class is a spot there called the Devil's Swimming Pool. All right? Here's the Devil's Swimming Pool. It's this little tiny infinity pool that is right on the edge of the 350-foot waterfall. And the crazy thing about the Devil's Swimming Pool is you can actually swim up to it, and you can actually dive in to this little infinity pool. And this is what people who visit Zambia, Africa, the Devil's Swimming Pool will do. They'll do a backflip off this rock. They'll go right up to the edge and just stick their head over a 350-foot waterfall. I know you probably don't hear that in seventh grade geography class because we didn't want anybody to do that, right? And now your kids are hearing that from me, church on Sunday. But what we've been seeing here in the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically the last couple weeks, we're talking about limiting your liberty for a few reasons, okay? And we've talked about how even though you have freedom in Christ to do pretty much anything that's, that's within the law of God, can doesn't always equal should, okay? Not everything is helpful. Not everything is actually the loving thing to do for your neighbor, for your brother or sister in Christ. And so you could literally live your life on the edge and just peer over dangerously, peer over the edge. But that's not necessarily probably the best idea at all times, right? How many of you would go to the devil's swimming pool? Anybody? Would anybody just jump in there? I see a few hands. 25-year-old 20, David probably would have done that. 35-year-old David, maybe not. Maybe not anymore. You know, you got kids, and I have a wife now, and I have to kind of take care of that. Uh, but yes, 
can does not always equal should. And in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, we saw that sometimes you should limit your liberty out of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can have a weaker brother and sister in Christ who don't understand everything that you understand about your freedom. And, you know, sometimes there's a situation where maybe I should limit that right that I have. I have every right to do it because I don't want them to stumble and fall into sin. I'm going to limit that liberty in front of them. And then in chapter 9, we also saw we should limit our liberty for the sake of the gospel. Okay? Sometimes people have different cultures, different backgrounds. We don't need to just explore everything and do all of our freedoms of Christ in front of everybody if it's going to be a stumbling block from that person needing Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 10, we have the third angle that Paul takes at this whole topic, this whole limiting your liberty topic. Now we're not talking about other sisters in Christ, brothers in Christ. We're not talking about people who don't know Jesus at all. Now we're talking about our own personal relationship with God. What do we need to do to limit our liberty to actually grow and thrive in our vertical relationship with God? That's what we're looking at here in chapter 10. So the warning for us, as you're going to see as we get into this text, is that we need to wield our freedom for the glory of God. And that there's actually even a danger in the good gifts that God gives us. The, the giver of all, the creator of all, who's created all these things for our enjoyment, for our benefit. Sometimes we can take a good thing, and the good thing can become the enemy of the best thing if we let it spiral out of control. I'm entitling this sermon, Being Tugged by the Riptide, okay? Sometimes there's good gifts, and if we're not too careful, we can see our passions and our, our, and our intensity and our, our emotions be so pulled by that riptide of that good gift that we focus on that and we elevate that above our God. And the good becomes the enemy of the best. And that's the warning we have in chapter 10. Verse 7 says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then in chapter 12, it says, or verse 12, excuse me, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Again in verse 14, therefore my beloved, flee from idolatry. The very real caution for all of us is to not flirt with the riptide, to get pulled and swayed into all these great other things that we're enjoying in life to where we take a good thing and it gets in the way of God. We want to we use our freedom for the glory of God, not just for our own benefit. There's three specific challenges that Paul has left on this topic. Some of it is a little bit of a review. But again, a lot of it gives us three specifics on not getting pulled in by other things that are good. So the first way that you do this, the first way that you do this is, number one, very simple, flee from idolatry. Flee idolatry. That's what you have to do. So look at the text here in verses 1 through 22. And I want you to see this for yourself because there's a lot going on here. And we're going to break this down. But it's best if you just see it first. And I'm going to read the first 22 verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not... Let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. He, we, we who are many are one body. We are all partaking of, the, of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, before you say, well, David, isn't idolatry so like a thousand years ago? <laughs> I don't really have to worry about worshiping an idol because I'm a 21st century American, okay? And with that, I would say not exactly. Okay, even the Corinthians, they were saved and they were called out of of these pagan lifestyles where they worshiped idols. They knew that an idol really wasn't anything. Okay, an idol really represented a demon and it didn't have any power or control over them. It meant nothing. It was wood. It was stone. It didn't do anything. They knew that just like you and I know that. But here's the thing. An idol doesn't just have to be an image. It can be an idol of the heart. There are good things that we can get so wrapped up in that we find ourselves literally sitting over the edge of the waterfall about ready to fall off because we can elevate that to be the ultimate in our lives. There's a lot of good resources on this, and one really great book that I have personally gotten a lot from is a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's written by a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor out in New York. And this is about the empty gods and the empty promises of love, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. This is from this book. But Keller shows us from scripture that our, our hearts are idol-making factories that can make the good gifts of God the ultimate in our life. And this is what he has to say about that. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So how do you know something in your life has become an idol, something that is good has become an idol? Well, he goes on to say this. He says here, 
a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So we're talking about fill-in-the-blank business. I'm talking about my wife. I'm talking about great things. My little girl. I'm talking about my hobby. All these things, they can actually, the good things can become enemy of the best thing if we push that too far, if we elevate that too far. If it's something that is more fundamental to your happiness than God is, and you feel like your life would be meaningless without it, that is a problem. That's a huge problem. We tend to divide the world into two types of people. We, we say pretty much everybody's either a worshiper of Jesus or they're a non-worshiper, right? A lot, of pe- a lot of times we think that way. But that's really not true because really we're made in the image of God to worship him. And so we're automatically, our default setting is going to be worshiping something. At all times, you know you are actually worshiping something. David Foster Wallace wrote a book called This Is Water. And this is a late author. He's no longer living. But he said if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Do you see the fear that is encased in worshiping other things other than God? They never measure up. They never satisfy our soul because our soul has eternity in it, and it is designed to worship an eternal Savior not a temporary good gift that we find here on earth. So what Paul is saying right here in 1 Corinthians 10 is, use your liberty for the glory of God and wield it in a specific way where you can take these good gifts and you don't get tugged and pulled in by the riptide, but instead you channel those for the glory of God. We look at the Israelites here as some exa- for some examples, Okay. Paul gives us a lot of examples, and if you are familiar with the story of the, of the Jews, the Israelites getting called out of the slavery of Egypt, and then going to the promised land, the new land, it's, a great, it's just a great parallel for our Christian life, because so, so much of that is for us. But specifically, pointing out a few things here from chapter 10, I want to show us some specific things that can cause you to be overconfident, some specific ways that you can identify, maybe I'm getting caught up and tugged by the current, the riptide. Maybe I'm letting a good gift pull me away. How can you be cautious about this, and how can you be aware of this, okay? What are some of these good things? Well, first one is the blessing of God. The blessing of God can actually sometimes get in the way of us worshiping God and living on mission for the glory of God. Do you realize that? I mean, we're, I think, as far as I know, all of us in this room are Americans. We're some of the richest people on the face of the earth. We have a lot of blessings of God, right? What was going on there in the story of the Exodus that Paul was referring to to the Corinthians? 
Well, they all passed through the sea. We just sang about that too. They all passed through the sea. They all ate of the manna. They all drank of the water that flowed from the rock. The rock pictured Jesus Christ. What an amazing, beautiful picture that is. When Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and instead he struck the rock, in God's mercy, he still flowed out living water for those people to drink from so they didn't have to die in the wilderness. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in our relationship with him. Well, all of, all, I mean, notice it says all five times in four verses in chapter 10. Did you see that there? They all did this. They all did this. They all did this. And in verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So what you have to see here is the blessing of God does not always equal my heart is in the right place with God. Just because you're receiving good things and great things are happening to you in life does not mean that you are aligned to where you need to be with your heart, with your relationship with your Savior. And on the flip side of that, just because bad things are happening to you doesn't also mean that God doesn't love you and God's not looking out for you. It's just those things are not an equal or thing. It's God loves you no matter what. God's going to use the good and the bad in your life to draw you to him. And, and you can use all of those things to bring glory to him. But we can't kid ourselves into thinking, hey, it's all good right now. My job's going great. My kids are doing well. I'm great at sports. All this awesome stuff. I'm good. That doesn't all, always mean you are good. So don't let that fool you. What's another thing that can trip us up? Spiritual ritualism. We see this in the text here, too. Um, they, they all passed through the water, and they all ate of the bread. And then in verse 15 and 16, he's, he's actually correlating those to baptism in the Lord's Supper, right? Do you see that in verse 15 and 16? Okay, so as what we're told here now, the Corinthians were feeling really good about our spiritual place, what we're doing at church on Sunday. You know, we're having baptisms, we're having the Lord's Supper, we're close to God, right? Everything's all good. And as what Paul is saying here is, no, that didn't save them either. Going to church on Sunday, reading your Bible, fabulous idea. If you're not doing that, you're going to find yourself getting into trouble for sure. But don't think just because you're faithful to church every Sunday, you're going to be good. And God, God's got his favor on you now. That's not the way it works either, right? You see here that, yes, they did this. The Israelites did all this, but there were still problems. They still fell into sin. You can't just go to church and read your Bible and just be free from temptation. That's not going to happen. You can still fall. And verse 12 stares you in the face, right? It says, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. The third way that we see here from the example of the Israelites that we need to be cautious about idolatry is focusing on others. Focusing on others. What was going on with that whole golden calf incident? And I don't have the time today to really like take a deep dive into that, so you're going to have to just trust me on this as I'm going to brush through this story. But with the golden calf incident, Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He's up there for a really long time, and the people get restless. But where's Moses? Why did he bring us out here? This is ridiculous. They start grumbling. They start complaining. Eventually, the people say, well, Moses must be dead. He's, he's done for. He's gone. Ah, oh, what are we going to do? And they, they, they complain to Aaron. 
and they convinced Aaron to take all of their gold, to melt it down, and to make a golden calf. What were they doing? They were going back to their old lifestyle that they knew from Egypt. And they were doing a very immoral fertility worship there. Very, very corrupt, immoral worship that they, that they went back to that they had learned from Egypt, okay? And how did they fall, fall into that? Well, they were looking to Moses, then they were looking to Aaron. Aaron's looking to Moses. Everybody got their focus off what they needed to focus on, which was God loves you. He brought you out. He called you out of the slavery of Egypt. He's brought us out of the bondage of the sin of slavery. And if we're focused on everybody else, what those people are doing, what these people say, we're not going to focus on our relationship with God. So an easy way that you can stumble into idolatry is when you focus on other people and get your mind on them. It's, it's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. We have to stay focused on our Savior and our relationship with him. Verse 13, this is where it gets really good, though, uh, because we have, this we have this warning, verse 12, and then in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Wow. Can you say amen? Thank you, Russell. Amen on that verse. I have gone back to this verse so many times in my life, over and over and over again. As I was meditating on this verse this week, I, I came across a song. There's a song called Love Like This by Lauren Daigle. And she says, when I am a wasteland, you are the water. When I am the winter, you are the fire that burns. When I am a long night, you are the sunrise. When I am a desert, you are the river that turns to find me. It is what we see here from this verse is God is never going to allow you to be tempted to the point where you can't overcome it through him. I used to say God will never give you something that you can't handle. I used to say that all the time. And the more I think about it, it's like, well, wait, actually, I have all kinds of things that I can't handle, right? <laughs> There's all kinds of things that I can't handle. So it's more like God will give you more than you can handle, but there's nothing that you can't handle without God. You see the difference there? We're not going to be able to do this all. No temptation has overtaken you that's not coming to man. We're all tempted in the same way. Don't kid yourself. Don't think, my life is harder than everyone else's. Well, you know what? That other person that you're looking at in the grocery store, you don't know their story, but they probably went through something, maybe, maybe earlier. Maybe they're going through something right now. We're all going through pain. We're all going through things. Or maybe if it's good right now, it's going to get harder later on, right? None of us have a monopoly on pain and suffering. That's a part of this fallen, sin-cursed world. So we're all going through these temptations, but we can all get through them. We can get through the suffering when we focus on what God has done for us and the strength that he provides us. He will provide a way of escape. He will give the endurance to fight idolatry. This is a winning battle because we have the victor on our side, Jesus Christ. So that was flee to the temptation to idolatry. That was the first way that we wield our freedom for the glory of God. What's the second way from this chapter that you can wield your freedom for the glory of God? Point number two is to seek the good of your neighbor. This is really simple and this is really beautiful. 
but it is simply to seek the good of your neighbor. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 in chapter 10. I don't know how I got on the other page. Here we go. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So Paul is now calling us back. He's reemphasizing this point that we've seen the last couple chapters, really. It's, life is not just about you. It's not just about us. If we're focused on the things that we need to be focused on, what God has done for us, we're just going to automatically want to share that with other people and seek the good of our neighbor. Now, verse 23, it says two things with all things are lawful. All things um, do not, are not helpful. And all things do not build up. So why, if you're like me, you're like, why does he say two different things there? Well, the all things are not helpful really is referring to us personally, which is what we just talked about. And then not all things build up. That kind of implies you're uplifting, you're edifying someone else. So that's now, transi- now we're transitioning to not just focusing on ourselves and our personal relationship with God, but we're looking at what verse 24 says to... Um, seek the good of your neighbor. So that's kind of the, the next phase that we've gone on to. Uh, you're, you're helping, you're building up other people. And when I think about this point, I can't help but think about Philippians 2, verse, verse 4. We did a series in Philippians when we first launched the church. In Philippians 2, 4, uh, you have it up here on the screen. Philippians 2, 4 says, I think we have Philippians 2, 4 up on the screen. Do we have Philippians 2, 4? Here we go. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is a beautiful command, but right after that, it flows right into this, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to chapter 6, or verse 6. Verse 6, and I'm going to have that up on the screen here for you as well. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Can I get an amen for that one? Jesus Christ on the cross. He sacrificed it all. He did it for you and for me. He loves us. His kindness and his mercy for us right there. Now, we have to acknowledge that this is not always easy to do, right? It's not always easy to look out for other people and to put yourself in other people's shoes and to sacrifice and to serve other people. And the other, other part on this is you can honestly take this even too far sometimes, and you can just never say no and always pour out, pour out, pour out to the point where you just get run over by people. Of course we're not talking about that. We're talking about having the right balanced perspective that says, hey, my life isn't just for me. God didn't save me. He didn't didn't call me out of the darkness and the slavery that I was in of of sin so that I could just enjoy the good gifts. He, He did this for me. He called me out so I can love and serve others and so I can be an ambassador for Christ. So I need to actually seek the good of others, seek the good of my neighbor. He called me out for that. And how... Can we actually accomplish this really hard task? Because as I said, this is not our default, right? 
It's not always easy to do it. How can we do this? Well, the answer is right here over my shoulder. It's by looking to the example of Jesus Christ. Look at, what, look at the gospel. What did Jesus do for us on the cross? He gave everything. He sacrificed his life for us on the cross so that we could have new life. So when we look at Christ and we meditate on the loving goodness of Jesus, that's when we can have the freedom to wield our liberty for the glory of God by seeking the good of our neighbors. And that's actually how Paul ends this whole, this whole thought in chapter 11, verse 1 which really is the conclusion of this, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we could end the whole sermon right there because we have to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's how we will be motivated and moved onto his mission of sharing his love and sowing his truth and his love and his justice and his mercy with our lives. The third way that you can wield your freedom for the glory of God, where you can be different by looking to Jesus. The third way that you do this, number three, is enjoy your liberty with thankfulness. Enjoy your liberty with thankfulness. Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go eat whatever is before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered, this has been offered in sacrifice and you do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of the conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give Thanks. So right on the heels of the heavyweight command that we have to seek the good of our neighbors, we give this uplifting, positive, refreshing reminder that we have liberty in Christ to live our life that he's given us, and we should do it with thankfulness. We've already talked a lot about this in chapter 8 and in chapter 9. A great example of this one, honestly, that's just the easiest one that comes to my mind is alcohol right? Uh, it's something that the Bible clearly says, do not get drunk. Drunkenness is wrong because you're being controlled by an outside substance that's not the Holy Spirit. And it brings, when you're, when you're controlled by something else like that, it can bring devastation and extreme pain and hardship. It tears families apart. You have to be very careful with that one. That's one of those where you can kind of swim in the devil's swimming pool of, right? You can get up to the edge, but it can, you can drop and you can fall with that. But, it, but you're going to be hard-pressed to find a passage of Scripture that doesn't say that you can't enjoy a craft brew or a glass of wine that complements your dinner. The Bible clearly says, don't get drunk, but it's not making a case to just cross it off forever. We have liberty, we have freedom here, but we have to be cautious with it. We also know that there could be brothers or sisters, people that just came to Jesus, who came out of a lifestyle where they abused alcohol. And if they see you partaking, you know what? that could tempt them to fall back into something that would be devastating for their conscience and that would cause them to sin. So we need to be very gracious and careful about that. We saw that one. We talked about that one. I think we understand that, that principle. The good is not always... Uh, it, the good is sometimes the enemy of the best, and sometimes um, we don't just do everything that we have. 
we, we have before us to do. Well, what are some other examples of this? To enjoy your liberty with, with thankfulness? If we could just get silly for a minute, I mean, almost anything. I mean, I, I have the freedom to grow a beard. I have a freedom to shave my face. There's no those stipulations on how I have to have my facial hair. All right? So I could have an Abe Lincoln beard. I could have a Pharaoh chin strap kind of thing. I mean, you could have a neck beard if you wanted to, right? But can doesn't always equal should. Okay? Remember that. Um, that might not be the best for edifying your brothers and sisters and putting your best foot forward for Jesus Christ. It's a neck beard, a scraggly neck beard. We have to think about those, those, those points. And ladies in the room, right, there's no specific dress code that the Bible gives us. You don't have, like, exact standards that you have to meet and, and requirements that you have to go through. But we have a biblical principle of modesty, which means that you wear what's appropriate that fits the occasion, right, without bringing in sexual allure. Like, yeah, that's, that's out of base because that doesn't fit with what we're called to do for Jesus. But we also have freedom for Christ, and we should enjoy this freedom with thankfulness. Have you ever met a Christian who is just, their life is run by fear of what other Christians may think and what other, what other people may, may say or do? I mean, I certainly have. It's not a very fun place to be in. You live in bondage to what others think, or you live in fear of what, uh, that somebody else might not approve. Well, Paul here says that you have freedom to be yourself, so enjoy God's good gifts. Be yourself. Be normal. Just, just don't make it weird. If somebody invites you over to dinner, you don't have to ask all these questions. Just go in there and partake. It's all right. If somebody brings up an issue that's clearly a problem for them, well, then pull back on that. You don't need to unnecessarily offend that person. I have talked to Christians, though, who they almost feel more comfortable around lost people than they do around other Christians. I mean, what's up with that? Doesn't that sound backwards to you? It is backwards. That should never be the case. Because we understand the gospel. We understand our freedom in Christ. We know that we were messed up. We were far from God, wandering far from the fold of God. And he called us out of that. He, called, he drew us in, right? We understand our freedom. So we shouldn't be the weird ones that are like picky about all these external rules and make it weird for people. We've got to stop doing that. We have to enjoy the freedom with thankfulness that God has given us. And we need to realize that we need to love others. Seek the good of your neighbor. A good way to talk about enjoying your freedom with thankfulness in verses 27 and 28, we really see both applications. And you can boil it down to this. Refrain out of love, not fear, and partake out of thanks, not spite. Do you see that? You see how sometimes we can just reverse those? And just get that all mixed up, like, I have freedom in Christ to do this, so I'm going to wear this in front of her just to spite her because she's wrong. And she's wrong to tell me that I can't do this. Is that the right attitude? <laughs> that sounds kind of spiteful, right? That's not really the heart of uplifting and building other people up, no. We partake out of thanks, not spite. We refrain out of love, not fear. We don't need to not do something just because I'm worried about, a, you know, I don't want him to think I'm not spiritual. No, no, that this text says don't do it that way. 
If you're going to refrain, you do it because you don't want that person to stumble and fall into sin. If they have a higher standard than you, praise God, that's good for them. They have a higher standard than you. They're not going to also fall into sin just because you're doing this. Do you follow that? It's really easy to get this out of balance. And honestly, this can be a thing that enslaves us and brings in fear because we're always trying to please other Christians. And then we, like, lose ourselves into, into missing the joy of the Lord and the thankfulness that we should be having for all the good gifts that he's given us. So we have to stay balanced here. Fear is a terrible motivator. It drains you over time. You are no longer a slave to fear, so base your decisions off of love. That's the simple rule to follow. Now look at verse 31 as we wrap this up. Verse 31.